again. Well, friends, one of the sad realities of life we see all around us, and it was certainly true of us, is we see people far more concerned about this life we're now living now rather than the life to come. Don't you see it? You see people who are very concerned about their status, their position, their comfort in this life, but give very precious little thought to their never-dying souls. We see people working hard to get an education, to get a career, to get an income, and to maintain that position and to advance themselves in, in their vocation. We see people buying homes and, oh, how careful they are to decorate their homes. And some of our neighbors, uh, I mean, their landscaping is just beautiful. And how many hours they spend beautifying the landscape. And friends, there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is they don't devote nearly as much time to the cultivation of their souls. If only we would give half as much time to the care of our souls and preparation for the life to come as we do for this life, we would be in a much better and safer place. Well, as it is now and as it has always been, it was so in first century Israel when the Son of God walked the earth. People existed in different groups, religious groups and socio-political, religio-political groups, and each group had their niche in society. Each group had their place of power and authority and influence. Each group had their particular agendas in that society. And sadly, when Jesus Christ came into their midst, all of these, all of these groups saw Jesus as a threat to them, a threat to their status, a threat to their position, a threat to their agendas, and in different ways. The Pharisees, as you know, were, were man-pleasers. They loved the praises and honor from men. And Jesus, by his popularity, was siphoning off a lot of people from them, and they were jealous of him, and they were against him. There were political groups, the Herodians, the Sadducees. They weren't so religious, but they were in bed with Rome, and they were concerned that Jesus' ministry would kind of stir up the Romans, and it would threaten their position. So all of these groups had their own agendas to protect, and they saw themselves as enemies of Jesus. They saw Jesus as a threat to them, and they opposed him, and they tried to destroy him. And so we've seen in Mark chapter 12, and you can be turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, that so far three groups have come to Jesus, and they want to get him into trouble. They either want to get him to say something which would alienate him from his faithful followers, or to say something that would get him in trouble with the civil Roman authorities. They're out to get him, to arrest him, and destroy him. But what we have seen so far is that with each group, Jesus displays masterful divine wisdom and he vanquishes each group. He silences each group and they fail in their attempts to find something against him and find a grounds for arresting and destroying him. We continue now in Mark's narrative and Jesus is once again going to be confronted with a question from a representative of one of his enemies but this morning, we're going to see a refreshing difference between this encounter and the previous ones. Our text is Mark 12, 28 to 34. Follow as I read. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, that is, the Sadducees arguing with Jesus, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture or dare to ask him any more questions. We're going to see from this passage, very simple outline. Jesus is asked another question. Jesus answers the question, and then Jesus affirms the questioner. So Jesus is asked another question. Verse 28, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Let's first look at the questioner before we look at the question. Who was this man asking the question? Well, he is said to be a scribe. Sometimes the scribes are called lawyers. The lawyers were those whose full-time job it was to copy the scriptures, to study the scriptures, and to teach the scriptures to others. Most of the scribes were Pharisees, although some were Sadducees. And we ask, well, what prompted this lone scribe to approach Jesus at this particular time and ask him that question? Well, the text says that he had heard the dialogue between Jesus and the Sadducees. He had heard them arguing, or King James, I think, has reasoning together. And that word can refer to a peaceable discussion, or it can speak about a, a contentious argument. For example, in Acts um, 6, 9, it speaks of those who rose up and argued with Stephen. Well, clearly the Sadducees were being contentious. They were his enemies. They wanted to find fault with him. And so this man is listening to the Sadducees arguing with Jesus, reasoning together with Jesus, and he had perceived, he had seen, he had recognized that Jesus had answered him well. And that word well, halos in the Greek, is, is a rich word. It means excellently or rightly, but it also has the connotation of beauty. So Jesus had answered with good content and with good form. And I just pause to say, friends, shouldn't all of our communication be like that? Shouldn't it be good in content? We speak true words, right words, but, but the way we speak ought to be excellent and beautiful and gracious as well. Well, Jesus spoke right things in a right way that obviously impressed this young scribe. So the man was impressed with how Jesus answered the Sadducees. Now, we learn from Matthew's version of this encounter that the scribe was a scribe from the Pharisees. And he actually asked the question of Jesus after a group of Pharisees kind of huddled together. After Jesus had vanquished the Sadducees, a group of Pharisees, according to Matthew's version, kind of huddled together. And then apparently they sent this man as a representative to speak to Jesus. Now, the Pharisees, on the one hand, would have delighted to hear Jesus trounce their theological enemies. Remember, the Sadducees were the, the liberals of their day. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did. They were theological enemies. And as the Pharisees listened to that, they might have delighted 
to hear Jesus just crush their theological enemies, the Sadducees. But remember that even though the Pharisees were against the Sadducees, they were not pro-Jesus. In a sense, they had no dog in that fight. They were opposed to the, Phar- the Sadducees, but they also were out to get Jesus. And uh, so they put this man forward to ask this question. And even though he's put forward by the Pharisees, what we see from this dialogue is that this man is his own man. He doesn't seem to be a typical dupe of the Pharisees. As the dialogue progresses, we see that he is of a different stripe. How do we account for that? Well, there are several possibilities. They might have put this man forward because they recognize he doesn't have the same animosity toward Jesus as the others. So maybe Jesus would not suspect him as much. Or maybe when the man started out his dialogue with Jesus, he was skeptical. But as he heard more of Jesus' words, he was more convinced of of Jesus' truth and Jesus' goodness. Matthew 23, 35 does say that this scribe came testing him. But as I've said before, that word testing in the Greek, perazzo, can either mean a malicious tempting, something the devil does, or an honest testing. But one thing we know for sure is that this man, this scribe, has a disposition that is refreshingly different from the people who had confronted Jesus before. Clearly, the three groups that came to him before came with unmitigated malice. This man seems to be a sincere seeker of truth. So much for the questioner, the scribe who asks the question. What about the question itself? What question does he ask? He comes to Jesus and he says, which commandment is the foremost of all? In other words, what's the first ranked commandment in the law? Now, the backdrop to this question was the fact that the rabbis were always constantly debating about the commandments. They had, by their oral tradition, extended the commandments to 613, 248 positive, 365 negative. And the Pharisees were always, or the the rabbis, rather, were always debating which ones were great, which were small, which were heavy, which were light. And according to William Hendrickson, they would also be prone to making summary statements about the law. The rabbis would make a a brief statement as to which was the most important law in, in the law of God. And so against that backdrop, this scribe asked Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, what do you think is the, the foremost commandment in the law? But he doesn't ask it with the same malice and evil intent as the previous ones had. So let's move to Jesus' answer to the question. His answer is in 29 to 31. Jesus answered, the foremost, the foremost commandment in the law is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You know, the way Jesus answers the question confirms the fact that this man is different from the previous questioners. He is more sincere. How do we know that? Remember the first group that came to Jesus, and uh, they were representatives of the Sanhedrin. By what authority do you do this? Remember how Jesus fielded that question? He didn't answer it directly. He answered it with a question. John the Baptist, was it from heaven or from men? 
because he didn't trust them. He knew what was in their hearts. The second group that came to Jesus, the Pharisee Herodian team, strange bedfellows, and they came um, with words of flattery, but Jesus, right out of the blocks, he says, why are you testing me? Bring me a coin. And then he answers truthfully, but shrewdly, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's to God's things, because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew they were malicious. The last group that came to him, the Sadducees, I mean, right out of the starting blocks, Jesus says, is this not the reason you are mistaken? You're ignorant of the scriptures and the power of God. Have you not read? And so Jesus, by his very response, indicates he didn't trust those people. He knew they had malicious intent, but not with this guy. When Jesus answers here, there's no rebuke. There's no indictment. There's not even an indirect defensive answer. He answers them directly and plainly. Jesus sensed that this man was different. Unlike the others, just this man was a sincere seeker after truth, and he answers him differently. And I want to know three things about Jesus' answer, summing up the whole law of God. Love God and love your neighbor. Three things. First, we can't miss the centrality of love, the centrality of love. What is the greatest commandment, Jesus? And he gives two but what the question is, Lord, what is it all about, really? What really matters? What is the taproot of true religion? What is the summary essence of true religion? And by the way, religion is not a bad word. Sometimes Christians say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Well, it's both. Religion, as I've told you, is from the Latin word relego religare, means to bind, how to be bound to God. And James says, true religion is to visit orphans and widows. Religion is a biblical word. The fact is, Christianity is, is the true religion. Every other religion is false. And religion is not a matter of going through motions. It, it is a relationship. But don't be afraid of the word religion. This is true religion, okay? And they're asking Jesus, what's the summary essence of true religion? What is the heart of true religion? And his answer is love. Love. True religion is the practice of love. If Christianity is anything, it is all about love. True believers, true Christians, ought to be the most loving people on the face of the earth. And doesn't this summary of the law, love God and love neighbor, doesn't it fit with other things that we're told in the New Testament? When Paul writes to Timothy, who is a pastor at Ephesus in 1 Timothy 1.5, he says, Timothy, but the goal of our instruction, the goal of our commandment is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Timothy, as you pastor that church there, love is your aim. Love is your main goal. 1 Corinthians 13, we know it well, says that it doesn't matter how gifted you are, how knowledgeable you are, how, how self-sacrificing you are. If you and I are lacking love, it, it negates everything. It counts for nothing. In 1 Corinthians 16, 14, Paul is wrapping up the letter to the uh, Corinthians, and he's giving these staccato exhortations, and he makes this statement, let all that you do be done in love. Comprehensively, everything you do Everything I do, every word that comes out of my mouth, let it be done in love. Comprehensive duty. Romans 13, 8, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. In Colossians 3, 14, after giving several exhortations about the new life, 
the new self, he says, beyond all these, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And in God's providence, we read 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 4, 8, as Chris read it, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. You can't miss the superlative language that is used when it comes to love. Love is our great duty. Love is the great aim of the believer. And the Christian ought to take a backseat to no one in the world when it comes to love. We should be outdone, outshined by no one in the world when it comes to love. Now, even as I say that, I think we're all aware that love is one of those words that has been cheapened, perhaps more than almost any other, in our common usage of the word, right? A lot of songs, popular songs for decades are about love, and for the most part, they're about romantic love, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not the love here. A lot of times, love is mistaken for lust. That is not love. That's, we'll see in a few minutes, that's antithetical to biblical love. A lot of times, when people talk about love, they're talking about a feeling, I feel affection, I feel love, and as we'll see, that doesn't begin to plumb the depths of love. And we can use love applied to a lot of things. I, I love my car, I love sports, I love my house, I love this, I love that. And um, there's nothing wrong with that in itself. But, but what is this love? When Jesus says, talks about the centrality of love, loving God and loving neighbor, what is this love? Well, it is the word agape. That's the highest word for love, agape love. And for decades, I have worked with this definition of love, which I think has served me well, and I think it's a good one. What is agape? Love is a choice that decides what is best for someone else and wills or purposes to bring it about no matter what the cost. Love is a choice that decides what is best for someone and then wills to bring it about no matter what the cost. You see, love is not just a feeling. Love involves the whole person, the whole man. Love is an intellectual activity. I have to look at someone and say, what does that person need? It may or may not coincide with what that person thinks he or she needs, what they may like or want, but what do they really need? It takes some intellectual exercise. What's in that person's best interest? And then it takes an act of the will. Once I decide what is in someone's best interest, I purpose with my will to bring it about. I'm going to do this. I'm going to love them in a way that does them good. And then, as the definition rightly says, no matter what the cost. And sometimes you have to pay a cost for loving God's way. In our day, we have people who have transgendered and if I see someone who is a biological man, but he prefers to be called by feminine pronouns, how do I love that person? I love that person by speaking the truth to that person. I'm not going to call that person by a feminine pronoun when God has made them a biological male. But I will get accused of misgendering. I may even lose my job over it. But I have to think, what does this person need? They need the truth. They don't need me to perpetuate the lie that they think they're a woman when really God has made them a man. And so sometimes you will pay a price for loving in God's way. This is what makes love... Well, let me no, say this. 
At bottom, love is other-oriented. That's what it's about. One of the descriptions of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is love does not seek its own, right? And that's what makes love so noble, so grand, but also so challenging. Because by nature, we are not other-oriented. We are self-centered. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, that we should no longer live for ourselves. Implication, before I came to Christ, I lived totally for myself. This is why, but he says, that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. The glorious truth is that only true Christians can truly demonstrate agape. Because of God's work in us, in dethroning that self-centered old nature and giving us a new nature, we alone have the capacity to love in an altruistic, unselfish, other-oriented way. And so it's not surprising that a few verses after saying we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf, just three verses later comes the well-known verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man, woman, be in Christ, he, she is a new creation. All things have passed away, all things have become new. The glorious truth is, through redemption in Christ, we have the capacity to truly love in an altruistic, unselfish way, like no one else can. But let me be quick to say that even though we can love truly, our love is never pure or perfect. As, as we know that sin does no longer reigns in us, but it does remain in us. And even in the best efforts to love, sometimes we fall into a legalistic trap. We think our loving things are offsetting our sinful things. We get into a legalistic mind. Even in our most loving deeds, oftentimes there's an element of, I want to be seen by men. I want to be praised by people. I want to be stroked by people. So even in our best efforts to love, we are never pure never perfect. And that's why Peter says, since you have purified uh, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So Jesus, in answer to the question, he gives the distilled essence of what it means to practice true religion, to live rightly in the world. And it's all about love. And it's only by the grace of God. But having seen the centrality of love from the text, let's next see the priority of love for God. If love is our central duty in life, the priority in our love is love for God. You see that? What does he mention first? Two great commandments. What's first? Love God, then love your neighbor. The priority of love for God. And Jesus doesn't begin by telling us how to love God, but he gives us an implied reason why. He begins with the Hebrew Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's the Hebrew Shema, the Hebrew word for hear. The Pharisees had these little cases called phylacteries, which they put on their um, on their arm, on their forehead, the frontlets of their their head. And those little packets, those little phylacteries had four verses in them. One of those was the Shema, which reads like that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. 
How is that an incentive to love God? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. First of all, it affirms the oneness of God. The Lord is one. There is only one God. And our love for God is not to divide it, be divided over many gods, but it is to be channeled and directed to the one living and true God. And how jealous is God? How often in the prophets does he say, I am the Lord, I am God, and besides me there is no other. In Isaiah 42, 8, he says, I will not give my glory to another. God is jealous to be seen as the one and only unique God who alone deserves worship and love. And so the fact that our God is one means that we need to channel all of our love toward that one God. And then he is the Lord. And that's the four-letter tetragrammaton, Yahweh, yod Hey, wow or vav Hey, that unspeakable name of God as God reveals himself to Moses. Who shall I say sent me? I am that I am, Yahweh. Profound concept. I am that I am. In other words, God's being is one that cannot be conceived of as not being. He is. He always was. He always will be. We cannot comprehend that. He is the I am. How does that contribute toward our love for God? Well, when he is the I am, he is the author of life. He is life itself. From him all things began. How can we dare worship something he made in the presence of the I am? Yahweh. He demands our supreme love because he's the creator. He's the ever-living one, the one who pre-existed everything, the one who is eternal. And so that's why we should love him, not only because he is the one true God, but he is Yahweh. And then he says, he is our God. And by saying he is our God, he reminds them that he is the God of covenant faithfulness to Israel all his saving mercies shown to them as a people. He has been to them a God of abounding love and compassion and kindness and goodness. He gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. He gave them promises. I will bless your wombs. I will give you children. I will give you crops. I will give you victory over your enemies. I will bless you in your bodies. I will bless you in your souls if you will only obey me. And so the fact that he is our God is a further incentive to love him supremely. So we have here, present in prayer, to be hearing, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. His oneness calls for our undivided love. His being as the ever-living one calls for reverent, awe-filled love and devotion. And the fact that he is our God, he has fought for us, he has defended us. He had protected us. He's provided us. He's delivered us. He's given us all that we need for body and soul. Surely we are to give to him unlimited love. But then, after giving reasons for why you should love the Lord your God supremely, he tells us how in verse 30. With all your heart, and you know that that word heart is the most comprehensive word for the inner man. It's, it's the center of our being. It's the control room of our being. Remember Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence. Out of it flow the issues of life. Love him with all your soul. And it would appear here that soul has the emphasis 
of our emotional life. Why do I say that? Well, in Acts 14.2, we read the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the souls of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Mary, in her Magnificat, says, My soul exalts the Lord. Jesus in the garden, my soul is deeply grieved. It seems that the soul here is spoken of as the seat of emotions. We're to love God with our emotions. Love him with all your mind. That's the seat of our intellect, the seat of cognition, our attitudes and our dispositions, and love God with all your strength. Every faculty of your being is to be directed in love toward God. Well, have you ever had people say to you, a little religion is a good thing? People have said that to me over the years. I remember as a young believer sharing the gospel with my relatives, and they would say, Chucky, using the diminutive, don't call me Chucky. Although somebody probably will, just for spite. Chucky, you know, a little religion is a good thing. A little, just don't go overboard with it. You know, it sounds like you're getting carried away. Really? A little religion is a good thing? When God says, love me with all, with all, with all, with all, a little religion? It also exposes the philanthropist. You know that word? Philos, love, anthropos, the word for man, lovers of mankind. There are people who are philanthropists. They're lovers of mankind, and they may pour millions of dollars into human causes. They're philanthropists. They're very generous with their money. And that's good, but philanthropy without philathia is idolatry. Love for mankind without Prior love to God is idolatry. I don't care how much money, how much time, how much energy you commit to committing to helping mankind if you don't love God first. It's idolatry because Jesus said, first you shall love the Lord your God. So that's our first duty. Romans 1 makes clear that if you love the creature rather than the creator, you're living a lie and you are in danger of reprobation. And how are we to love God? Just to explore that in a little bit more detail for a couple of minutes. How do we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, Jesus said, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do you know what the first commandment of Jesus is? As he begins his ministry, we saw it in Mark 1, 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Do you, love, you want to love Jesus? The first command of Jesus to show your love for him is repent and believe the gospel. Let him save you. Turn from your sinful self-centeredness. Put your trust in him alone to save you. If you love me, keep my commandments. His first commandment is to repent and believe the gospel. And that's what you need to do. But then Jesus further said, in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? If you love me, you keep my commandments. So what is it to love God in a wholehearted way? What is it to love God with your mind? Isn't it to increasingly think God's thoughts after him? To submit your thoughts to God's thoughts in his word? 2 Corinthians 10, 5, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I'm thinking this way, but God is thinking this way. Trash my thought and replace it with God's thought. I want God's thinking about everything in life. That's what it is to love God with your mind. Love God with your soul. It means to conform your emotional life increasingly to the emotional life of Jesus Christ. Increasingly loving the things that God and Jesus loves 
hating the things that they hate, being moved with compassion for the things that move Jesus with compassion, being angry about the things that made Jesus angry, so that our emotional life ought to be increasingly conformed to that of Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. That's how we love God with all of our souls. Love God with all your heart. Purpose to obey him and do the right thing, no matter how you feel. And so we are called to love God comprehensively. So the centrality of love in the Christian life, but the priority of love to God, but now the necessary corollary of love to neighbor. Second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. And I won't take time to turn there, but that's from Leviticus 19.18, where God told his old covenant people to love their neighbor. Now, we said earlier that if someone loves his fellow man without loving God, it's idolatry. But we can go on to say this. If you say that you love God, but you do not love your neighbor, you're a liar. How can I say that? First John, the Apostle John says it. First John 4, 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Now let's track this out here in this passage very briefly. We love God. Why do we love God? Well, verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. We love God because he first loved us. How did he first love us? Back up in the passage to verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love God because he first loved us. How did God first love us? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Most of you know that word, propitiation. It means wrath absorber. We are sinners under the wrath of God, and the lightning bolt of God's wrath is headed for each of our heads. That's what we deserve. In coming to earth and going to the cross, Jesus Christ stepped in between me, a wrath-deserving sinner, and God, a wrath meeting out God. Jesus stepped in between us, and he took the lightning bolt of God's wrath upon himself, absorbing all the wrath that was intended for me so that God can smile upon me. And I will never know in this life or the next one drop of God's wrath, only his smile of approval because Jesus has been the wrath absorber, taking it all for me. Why do I love God? Because he first loved me by sending Jesus to be the propitiation, the wrath appeaser on my behalf. And so that's what it means to be a child of God, to trust in Jesus, to bear your wrath. And trust him as your savior. And then you realize God loves me so much. And then you love him back. And the point here that John is making is if you love God because he loved you first, you also love his other children. If you love God, you love what God loves. And God loves all of his children. God's got a lot of children and he loves them all. And if you say you love him and you're right about it, you will love all of his children, red and yellow, black and white, 
educated, uneducated, wealthy or poor, formerly religious, formerly irreligious, you will love them all. You will love your neighbor. What is neighbor love? Well, Jesus was once asked, who is my neighbor? He answered that question, didn't he? In the parable of the Good Samaritan, and basically his answer was, anyone who is in my path, who has a need that I can meet, that is my neighbor. Anyone. Now, we should say biblically that the neighbor who has first claims upon our love is our brothers and sisters. Galatians 6.10, do good to all men, even those of the house, especially those of the household of faith. Do good to all men, love all men, but especially those of the household of faith. But neighbor love extends even to our enemies. Romans 12, never take your own revenge, leave room for the wrath of God. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If his enemy, your enemy is hungry, give him something to drink. Even in that way, we are to love our enemies. There's no loophole. We are to love all of our neighbors. How am I to love our neighbor? This is crucial. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there's a lot of psychologized Christianity today, and you can read whole books about it, how you need to, if Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, you first need to love yourself. So the whole focus is learning to love yourself. Well, that's not what it says. Jesus assumes what he knows, and that is that we already love ourselves too much. The point is, take some of that love you have for yourself and turn it outward and give it to others. Do you take care of your own body? Well, he said, no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Well, care for the bodies of others. Do you care about the reputation of others or yourself? Well, we'll take uh, an interest in the reputation of others. Do you want to protect yourself? Well, protect others. He says some of that self-love that we all naturally have were to turn outward. And we know that we're all selfish. Children don't need to be taught that. One of their early words is mine, whether they're German or English, right? Mine, mine. They don't want another toy until another child has it, right? Then all of a sudden, they want what the other child has. It's mine. We're just selfish and self-focused by nature. And we're to turn that love we have for ourselves outward to others. In Romans 13, 8 to 10, Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall love your neighbor, for this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to your neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. If I love my neighbor, I will not murder my neighbor with a gun, with a knife, or with my words. If I love my neighbor, I will not covet what my neighbor has. I will not commit adultery with my neighbor's wife, not even with my eyes and thoughts. Love does no ill to a neighbor. We might put it this way. Love provides the motivation and the power. Law gives the direction. Love is the engine. Law is the tracks on which the engine runs. Some old writer said, law is love's eyes. Without it, love is blind. And another pastor added, but love is law's soul. Without it, law is dead. So Jesus answers the question. Love God first and then love your neighbor. And then very briefly, Jesus affirms the questioner. He wraps up this section by affirming the scribe who asked the question. 
Verse 32 and following, the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture, literally no one dare, to ask him any more questions. First, we see that the questioner actually affirms Jesus, doesn't he? He says, Jesus, you are right. And that, again, is our word kalos. Jesus, you have answered excellently and beautifully. It, it resonates with me, Lord. And then he repeats the Shema, but not even mentioning the divine name, which was typical out of reverence for that name. So Jesus affirms, or, or the, the, the scribe affirms Jesus. Jesus, you are right. And the questioner then actually expands Jesus' words. He goes beyond it. And he says, to love is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's a significant statement. Several places in the Old Testament reflects this. And when Samuel reproved Saul because of Saul's disobedience, 1 Samuel 15.22 reads like this, Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. You can also read that in Hosea 6.6 and Micah 6.6-8. What's the point there? The point is not that God is against sacrifices. God had appointed sacrifices but what he's saying is going through the motions of religious ceremony and offering sacrifices, if you do not have a heart of love for God, is empty and worthless. And this man was beginning to see that. He did not want just empty religious ceremony. He saw that was worthless. He understood it. He's seeing the emptiness and the futility of a heartless, loveless, and external religion, which the Pharisees were all about. And then he is affirmed by Jesus. Jesus responds to him, and he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And that was no doubt meant to be an encouragement to this man. You're not far from the kingdom of God. You're beginning to get it. You're beginning to get and understand true religion. The Pharisees were all about sacrifice, all about external formalistic ceremonies. And this man is beginning to see, no, it's heart religion. It's a relationship of love for God and love for neighbor. He's beginning to get it. And Jesus encourages him, you're not far from the kingdom. You're coming. Keep coming. And then it says no one else dared to ask him any more questions. Everybody who came to Jesus either got silenced and shut down or they got convinced. And so no one else came. Now, I don't want to end there. I want to make some applications. The first is this. It shows us the futility of trying to save yourself. A lot of people think they can be good enough or do good enough to save themselves. Do you want to save yourself? Here's what you need to do. Love God every moment of your life with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor perfectly every moment of your life, and then you'll be good enough for heaven. Impossible. Which of us even becomes close to that? In light of that standard, we are all miserable lawbreakers. And that's why you can't save yourself. And you need to give up trying. 
And you need to trust Jesus, who did perfectly love God, his Father, did perfectly love his neighbor. He lived perfectly, and then he died sacrificially so we could get into the kingdom of God by grace and not by our own efforts. Secondly, it should make us Christians very grateful for Jesus Christ and his forgiving and redeeming grace. He climbed the mountain that was too steep for us to climb. We could not love God and neighbor enough. He loved God perfectly, loved his neighbor perfectly. And as a result of what he has done for us, we can be forgiven. But not only that, he died to change us so that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. Christian, you have the greatest freedom in the world. The greatest bondage in the world is self-centeredness. You lived for yourself, and so did I. That's a terrible bondage. Always thinking about yourself, self-promotion and self-protection and self-concern and self-interest, self, self, self. That's a miserable way to live. Jesus Christ has freed you from that so that you no longer live for yourself, not perfectly, but truly. You know, R.C. Sproul once had a group of Christians in front of him. And he said, which of you loves Jesus Christ as you ought? And they all hung their heads and no one raised his or her hand. And then he said, how many of you love Jesus at all? They all raised their hand. To be a Christian is to love Jesus. Not perfectly, but to love Jesus. And if that's a strange concept to you, love Jesus? Maybe it's because you don't, and you need to understand more about this salvation. Before I was a Christian, I heard the language from my Christian friends, I'm supposed to love God. I didn't get that. I had a family. I loved my family. I loved my brothers, sisters, my father, mother, but love God? But after I became a Christian, I understood that. If that notion is fuzzy to you, then maybe you need to seek one of us out and find out what it means to love God. You'll love God when he loves you first, and he'll love you when you let his son be the propitiation for your sins. Here's a fourth application. This is a checkpoint for the, um, I'm sorry. Um, this shows us the harmony between law and love. Law and love are not enemies. Like I said, love is the engine and the power, but Law is the tracks on which it runs. So the law of God, John says, the laws of God are not burdensome. The commandments of God are not burdensome to us. I don't read the laws of God, the commands of God, say, oh, another duty. If I'm looking at it rightly, I say, oh, here's another way I can show my love for God. Here's another way I can show my love for neighbor. And by the grace of God, I have the capacity to do that. I have the desire to do that. So law and love are not enemies. They're friends. Love is the power and the motivation Law provides the tracks on which the engine of our love runs. And then this is a checkpoint. I think I jumped ahead of myself. For the genuineness and growth of your religion. Like I said, it's a, it's a checkpoint for the genuineness of your religion. If, if you don't love God, you may not be a Christian yet. You need to understand what that is. But this idea of loving God and neighbor is also a checkpoint for our growth in grace. We're to grow in grace. We're to be sanctified, right? Here's one of the metrics, our love for God. And so I ask you, are you growing in your love for God? Well, how do I know? 
Are you taking your thoughts more captive to God's thoughts? Are you submitting your thinking more and more to God's thinking in his word, loving him with your mind? Are your emotions coming more into line with God's emotions? You're loving more what he loves, hating what he hates, having compassion where Jesus had compassion. Are your emotions becoming more Christ-like than you're loving him with all your soul? Are you making decisions more based on faith and not feeling? Well, then you're loving God with all of your, your heart. Love is one significant measure of our sanctification. Fifthly, very briefly, it's a good test for any contemplated, deci- contemplated decision or action. Before you make a decision, before you do something, before you even say something, here's a good question to ask. Is this loving? How will this show my love for God? How will this show my love for neighbor? So many things come out of my mouth, which moments later I regret. Chuck, that was stupid. That was not loving. That was not sensitive. But if we ask the question, is this decision loving toward God and toward my fellow? Is what I'm about to say going to be an expression of love for God and love for my neighbor? Then say it. So it's it's a bit of a, a test for any contemplated decision or action. Is it loving? Let all that you do be done in love. Sixthly, next to last, recognize that coming into the kingdom is a process. Now, let me qualify. In one sense, coming into the kingdom is momentary. The moment you repent and believe in Jesus, you pass from death to life. It's a moment. It's an instant. You see, nobody is here in the middle. Right now, you're either in the kingdom of God or outside of the kingdom of God. Nobody's sitting on the fence. Because if you died, where would you go? There's no halfway place, despite our Catholic heritage. There's no purgatory. You're either going to heaven or hell. Right now, every one of you is either in the kingdom of God or outside the kingdom of God. And the moment you repent and believe in Jesus, you transfer from outside the kingdom into the kingdom. You're saved in an instant. But the process that leads up to that is indeed a process. How does it happen? Oh, you think you're a pretty good person. I'm good enough to go to heaven compared to other people. And then you begin to read the Bible or you begin to hang out with Christian people and you realize, you know, I'm not as good as I thought I was. And you begin to read the Bible, you begin to see Jesus and you say, wow, compared to Jesus, I'm, I'm not nearly as good as I thought I was. Jesus is beautiful. Oh, his words, his, his heart, his compassion, his love. And you begin to see yourself as more and more unclean and filthy until you get to the place where you realize, you know what? I don't think I'm good enough for heaven anymore. I think I need what the Bible says I need to trust in Jesus. And at some moment, whether you know it or not, you put your faith in Jesus and you're born again. But it's a process to get there. The final thing I want to say is beware of getting, only getting not far from the kingdom. Notice what Jesus said to this man, you're not far from the kingdom. Did he ever get into the kingdom? We don't know. Maybe in heaven we'll know, but we don't know. But if any of you are not far from the kingdom, don't stop there. If you have begun to see, you know, I'm just not as good as I thought I was, and the more I learn about Jesus and the more I hang around with God's people, I realize, man, I'm not dirtier than I thought. And I do need a savior. You're coming. You're close to the kingdom, but don't stop until you are safely within the confines of the kingdom, when you know for sure, I have been forgiven, I have been changed, I'm a child of God, assured of going to heaven when I die.
as the adage goes, horseshoes count, or rather almost counts for horseshoes and hand grenades, does not count for the kingdom of God. Let's pray and we'll sing. Lord, take your truth and use it in our hearts as we need. Surely all of us need to love you more, love others more. For those who don't love you at all, may they inquire, what does it take for me to love God? May they learn more about your love for them, which causes us to love you. We pray in